0: It's just something to keep in mind if they have quite a lot of foreign investment or pension accounts, life insurance, it's pretty easy with life insurance to get up into these high figures fairly quickly. You are listening to US Tax, a podcast for Australian accountants with US clients.
1: Welcome to Update 1 of US Texts, this is Heide Robson. So this is the very first US episode we ever published, a long time ago on the 3rd of October 2017, originally as Episode 9 of Text Talks and then later we renamed it to US 1 of Text Talks. If I'm honest, I feel a bit embarrassed about these very early episodes since I had absolutely no clue i still have no clue but the audio in these early ones is really not great so please grin and bear the audio in these very early episodes i like to believe that the quality improves as we move through the updates up to the current one So this is US Tax, the podcast for Australian accountants with US clients, and this is your very first episode of US Tax. From US 16 onwards, the episodes are published straight away here on US Tax and no longer on Tax Talks, but the first 15 episodes, so US 1 to US 15, were first published on Tax Talks and are now coming over to US Tax, so that you have them all together and don't have to jump around on Tax Talks trying to find them because... Over there, they are kind of drowning in the 300 episodes about Australian tax. And so the plan is to cover US tax issues that affect your Australian clients. So clients who are Australian tax residents and have some connection to the US tax system. So now let's start with update number one about the US tax position of US tax residents living in Australia. When an Australian resident is also a US citizen, what is happening to them in the States with respect? to their US income taxes. Here's Jane Bruno of AA American Tax Services. Jane has been preparing US tax returns for US expatriates for over 20 years. So is full of insights and knowledge that she will share with you.
0: To start out, before I get into the nitty-gritty of some of the requirements for filing and some tips that might be helpful for if anyone is advising Americans overseas on their filing responsibilities in the U.S., I wanted to just point out that the IRS does have a very good website. It's www.irs.gov, and on that website, they have every form that could be needed to be used in filing us tax return along with instructions for each form they have a variety of publications that address really any topic that you one might have questions about so the publication 54 is the the one that is specifically addresses tax issues related to americans living abroad and when I say Americans living abroad, I'm also including in that category people who are classified as resident aliens, which classification means that they're required to file a U.S. tax return as if they were a U.S. citizen. So just for purposes of clarifying, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that category in a minute. So The IRS website is a wealth of information. The ability to actually contact and speak with an IRS representative is much more limited and much more difficult. So I don't, I try to avoid that as much as possible, quite frankly, because it's very difficult, even living in the US, to get a hold of anyone to start with and then to find someone that can actually answer your question is even more difficult. So the best, I've actually, when I've had questions, gone and just Googled the question and put it out there to the online community to see what kinds of answers are coming in on a specific area. So unfortunately, I think the IRS is pretty understaffed and underfunded, so they don't have a lot of resources to devote to answering people's questions. So, with that rather long introduction, I wanted to address the question of who needs to file. The fact is that a U.S. citizen is taxed on their worldwide income. So, if they live in Australia, and even if they work there, if they don't work there and have a lot of investment income, for instance, they still would need to file a U.S. return. If they live in Australia and have income from any source, they need to report that to the US. So that category of citizen is fairly clear. I think it's more complicated when it comes to the people who have a status in the US and it's not, you know, it has to be determined what that status is. If they've been issued a permanent visa, which is often referred to as a green card, by the immigration service, they are treated as if they are U.S. citizens for tax purposes. Now, you may run into a situation where a green card holder has moved back to Australia from the U.S. and they maybe have been there for many, many years. And so before I would make a determination that they have a filing obligation. I would want to know if their green card status is current. So and that is not something that is really a tax issue. It's the the validity, if you will, of their green card is determined by the the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And my understanding is that they can eventually expire or they can be revoked in some way. So I'm not an authority on that, but that's something I would look into. We're trying to determine if there was a filing obligation. So the, once it's determined that they most likely need to, to file, clear, if, there's no question if they're a U.S. citizen, and if they're a green card holder, the chances are good that they would have to file. If they were in the U.S. for a brief period of time, and did some work there, they might be issued some forms from whoever they worked for in the U.S., indicating that they had a filing obligation. And that's a little bit different category. It's possible to file a 1040 NR, which is the NR standing for non-resident, to report income that's connected with activities or services performed in the U.S. That's really a kind of a category of its own. So I'm not really going to talk about that tonight because it's got a lot of of wrinkles and implications on its own.
1: So a green card holder, even if he's living in Australia, is classified as a resident alien. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. Yes. Yes. So they have the same filing obligations as a US citizen. If they have a valid green card, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the income thresholds that have to be met before there actually is a filing obligation because we have in the US system a sort of a there's a certain amount of money that you can make before you actually owe any tax and those are generally comprised of a personal exemption for everyone that's in the filing group and normally it's a family and then a standard deduction standard deduction is higher if you're married filing jointly with your spouse and the personal exemptions normally each family member gets one so if you had a wife and two children and they all had social security numbers or or they were more or less in the u.s system they would each get their own personal exemption a general rule of thumb is that an individual, Would have to make in excess of around $10,000 in order to have income that's subject to US tax. And it's roughly double for that, uh, double that for a married filing joint couple, couple that's both taking a standard deduction and a personal exemption. These amounts are subject to a fluctuation, they go up a little bit every year. And obviously, if there's more family members that qualify for personal exemptions, then this threshold for actually having a tax obligation can increase as well. But the $10,000 is just kind of a starting place. And so this might be relevant in the case of a couple that comes in. The, The husband is the primary wage earner or breadwinner. He's an Australian. The wife is just an american for let's say and has a small amount of income perhaps doing some part-time work or something it's very likely that she would not have a filing obligation because her income falls below that threshold in that scenario even if she were going to file she would most likely file as married separate and you know so so there's there's lots of of things that could come into that filing But at the moment, we're just talking about the threshold for taxable income.
1: Jane, could you talk about something else that is foreign to Australians because we don't have that concept, and that is the possibility to file together. In, In Australia, everybody files separately. There is no joint filing. But I get the impression from what you just mentioned before that it's actually possible for an entire family to file together. Is that correct?
0: yes normally if you have you know an intact family if you will the income that would be reported would be for the the husband and wife and then they could claim a personal exemption for themselves and for each of their children so in the case with a husband wife two kids there'd be four exemptions and the the personal exemption each has a dollar value that is subtracted from taxable income to reduce the amount of taxable income. So if the children had income, they would need to report that separately on their own tax return, and then there would be a question. They would have a choice of continuing to, depending on their age, they can only take this exemption this personal exemption and be claimed as a dependent by their children by their parents up until a certain age. Okay, so assuming that they're, you know, m- most often this would occur with a teenage child who has some after school income, or possibly a child in college who has a part time job. They could either claim their own exemption and they're basically sort of break away from the family unit for tax purposes and file their own tax return, take all their own exemptions and deductions. Or there's this, you know, like a special box you would check on the tax return saying that they're still being claimed as a dependent by their parents. And so they wouldn't get the full benefit of, of all the exemptions and, the exemption and deductions. So it can get a, a little complicated with how how the you would never report the child's income on the parents tax return unless unfortunately there's still another situation here where you would need to if they have investment income you can choose to report investment income for a child in some cases on the parents return So now I was going to talk about the type of income that is taxed. I, I use that term very broadly. You know, taxed on your worldwide income, and that includes salary or self-employment income. It includes the salary or whether you, whether the taxpayer is working for an American company or an Australian company or even a third country company that has assigned them to Australian is paying their salary. It's investment. It would also include investment income. Now, we have a, a system in the U.S. where you're only taxed on investment income that is realized. So if you got interest on a bank account, that would be taxable. If you got dividends paid out, even if the dividends were reinvested, that would be, be taxable in the current year partnership distributions, rental income, royalties, pretty much any source of income except, and I don't really consider this income per se, but if you receive an inheritance, the recipient, the beneficiary is not taxed, and if you receive a life insurance payout, that would not be considered taxable. So one, if, if there's ever a question about this the publication in the irs arsenal of publications is pub 17 and this has a very complete listing of everything that's considered income and you know conversely everything that is not so if you you know have a client with some strange source of income that would be a good resource to look up and see if if this qualifies as as income that needs to be included
1: one question you might not know the answer because it might be very Australian specific, but I don't even know. Does the US have imputation system so that we we call it a franking credit? Does the US have something like that?
0: No, we don't. I, I've run across that with with some clients that I've had in Australia, and it's not it's not really recognized here at all. If a US citizen has invested
1: in an Australian company, receives dividends, receives franking credits, he or she wouldn't get a tax offset for those franking credits in the U.S.?
0: No, not as far as I know. I did a a little bit of research when that issue came up with this client that I had because I wasn't really familiar with franking credits, and I could not find any support for the notion that we would be able to give what we would consider a foreign tax credit for those. Now, well, we we don't have it in that way in, in the U.S. I mean, I think there's a recognition that there is double text but, but we haven't figured out. So once it is determined that there is the need to report, the question, of course, is when when do the forms have to be filed? And just at the outset, I wanted to Point out that we operate on a, a calendar year for most taxpayers. It's possible for partnerships and corporations, obviously, to have other than calendar years. I think it's even possible for an individual to elect a non-calendar year. But I've, you know, it, it 99.9% of the time, we're looking at filing the tax return from. on the income received from January 1st through December 31st of the year previous to the year that the tax return is due. The filing deadline is April 15th. That is when tax is due. And so if there's any notion that tax might be due on on when the return is filed, even if you're going to apply for an extension, then it's a really good idea to go ahead and estimate the amount of tax due and pay it because interest will start to accrue from uh, April 15th.
1: Even if you have an extension.
0: Even if you have an extension, exactly. So it just makes sense to do your best guess. And if if the the client ended up overpaying, then they would get a refund of, of the excess paid. So the automatic extension, which is... It's automatic in the in the sense that you don't have to justify it, but you do have to file a form, and it's a Form 4868. This gives the taxpayer until October 15th to file. For Americans that are living out of the country on April 15th, they have an automatic extension until June 15th. Now, that doesn't have to be applied for, but you need to attach to the tax return a little note saying that you were living out of the country as of April 15th and therefore you're entitled to this extension to June 15th so frankly it's it's easier just to file the automatic extension to October 15th you don't have to attach anything to the return you just these can be done electronically. I believe it can be done actually at the IRS website. And you know, the taxpayer can do it or the, the tax preparer. It's quite an easy thing to do to just go ahead and and the automatic extension to October fifteenth can be requested when the when the taxpayers living overseas, they have until June fifteenth to request the October fifteenth extension. So I'm probably confusing you terribly but no no it makes perfect sense yeah so so you you have extra time to get the return completed but if you find out that you can't yet it can't be done by june 15th then you can apply for the automatic extension until october 15th
1: but even with the june 15th extension tax is still due on april 15th and interest accrues from april 15th
0: yes right I just wanted to mention that not only can you have interest, but you can get late payment penalties if you don't pay by April 15th. And so, you know, it's definitely in the best interest of the client to make your best guess on on tax obligation and pay it by the 15th of April.
1: Another thing I wanted to ask you, Jane, is how do you deal with the calendar year in the U.S. tax system and the 1st of July to 30th of June income tax year in the Australian tax system when you need to report Australian-sourced income in the U.S. tax return?
0: Yeah, I normally, if I will try to apportion it if it's reasonable and I have, you know, the information from all the relevant years, I will try to figure out what part of each Australian year is allocated, is considered, you know, earned during the U.S. calendar year. So it's the same situation in the UK, you know. So, quite a, so I'll, I will carry it over from year to year for clients that I've had consistently where, you know, I just take the end of one year, you know, that's say the first, I don't know, the first or last half of, of the year in question, and then just combine it with the preceding or the succeeding year. It's a little bit tedious <laughs> too to do all the allocations, but if if it's reasonable to do that I will. So the foreign earned income exclusion was actually a device created by Congress in the nineteen seventies to make help make Americans more competitive in the, the world markets. The concern was we're one of the few countries that has worldwide Taxation, taxation on taxation on our worldwide income, so this was an effort to level the playing field a little bit. The current format is that you have to meet one of two tests in terms of, of residency in a foreign country in order to qualify for the exclusion. The physical presence test is requires that you be out of the United States for 330 days in a 365-day period and those 365 days can be any series of consecutive days they don't have to be a calendar year but during that time you can't be back in the US more than 35 days and there's a whole raft of explanations about what qualifies as a day and you know whether you it's it's out of the US or in the U.S. and so forth. Uh, Once again, I would refer any tax preparers to this publication, 54, which goes into a lot of detail about specific situations that might come up that cause confusion. But just generally, you have to meet the physical presence test, 330 days out of 365, or the bona fide residence test. The bona fide residence test requires that you be a bona fide resident of a foreign country for a full calendar year, and January 1st to December 31st, before you can qualify for this test. Again, the definition of a bona fide resident is that you have your tax home in the foreign country, and there's lots of definitions that start to become relevant here about tax home and residence and all these kinds of things. But just generally speaking, I think in terms of having to have lived overseas for a full calendar year and have some type of living arrangement there that supports the fact that you're a resident of that foreign country. Now, let's say you move to a country in November. And so let's say in November of 2016, you moved to Australia and you stay there until 2018. If you are in Australia from January to December of 2017, you now qualify for the bona fide residence test. So you have an option at this point, let's say in in November of 2016, you had a certain, you know, income from November and December, but you don't really qualify for the physical presence test, and obviously not yet a bona fide resident. You can file for an extension that allows you to not file your 2016 tax return okay. until such time as you've met that bona fide residence of one year, which would be 2017. So you could actually not have to file your U.S. tax return until 2018. So it's an interesting little wrinkle that full-year bona fide residence can be a bit of a stumbling block. You know, it's, it's a long period of time to have to be in the foreign country. But once you meet that, then, first of all, there's no real time restrictions on how much time you can spend back in the U.S., So, if you're a bona fide resident of Australia, and you have a family member in the U.S. that gets sick, and you have to come back and spend two months taking care of that person, or three months, you still retain your status for tax purposes as a bona fide resident of Australia. You could not meet the physical presence test in in the situation I described. So, it, it, it can be a very valuable status if you will to have it can be a little more you know challenging if if you were to be ever challenged by the by the IRS on it as to whether you are a bona fide resident you might you would need to show things like you have connections with the social connections in the country you have an apartment or or home, or your children are in school there, or, you know, you, you're establishing your residency there, whereas the physical presence test basically just requires that you physically be there. You may not be planning to stay for very long. So they have a little bit different flavor to each of them, and they can be – so it's, it's important to understand – what the situation of, of a client is, are they there just for a year, uh, their employer in the U.S. sent them there for a year to do some special project, and then they're going to come back to the U.S., or were they assigned on a more or less permanent basis to stay in Australia, or maybe, obviously, it would happen more often, I suppose, when an American married an Australian and, you know, obviously intends to stay in the country. So there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both of those filing statuses. But once you have determined which one they meet, then you just look at the work. The, the main, I guess, stipulation is that the work be performed in a foreign country doesn't mean you can't do work over the Internet. You could be selling things to Americans by Internet but the fact that you're present physically present in Australia will qualify you to take the foreign exclusion.
1: The physical presence test or the bona fide or resident test, they're both only relevant if you want to claim the foreign earned income exclusion. Otherwise, they, they don't really affect your filing status.
0: No, that is correct, yes. So, so this, this, the exclusion allows you to exclude from U.S. taxable income the amount that has been determined for each year, provided that you meet that test. That exclusion is actually quite high, isn't it? It's over hundred thousand dollars. Yes, it's over a hundred thousand. It's a hundred and two thousand in one hundred dollars for two thousand seventeen. I was going to just make a comment that the exclusion can be allocated if you if you suppose you lived in Australia for of two thousand sixteen. You stayed there half of 2017 and then you came back to the U.S. You could take a portion. You would still be considered, if you met the physical presence test or even actually the bona fide residence test in that case, you might be able to take half of the exclusion for the time that you lived and worked in Australia in 2017. So it would be allocated based on if you lived if you lived and worked there six months, the maximum exclusion you could take would be half of the the maximum exclusion for that year. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, yes it does.
0: So that's something that you you don't lose it all together just because you relocate back to the U.S. Okay, so if both spouses have income and and you file a joint return, they each have the full amount of the exclusion for themselves. So, you know, theoretically, they could exclude Mm $204,000.
1: That's
0: quite a combined exclusion, yeah. Yes, yes, it is. Then you you may be able to add to that by taking the housing exclusion. Normally, the housing exclusion is is a better, it adds to the amount of excludable income, the amount that's excluded from tax. But there are lots of restrictions on it. It has to start off exceeding a housing amount. So what they basically what the uh, Congress and the IRS did is said that it's going to cost certain amount to live anywhere, and that expense is going to be incurred by the taxpayer whether they live in the U.S. or a foreign country. But quite often, when you live in a foreign country, it's way more expensive. The cost of living may be higher you know, the living situation may be completely different. So we're going to allow you to take this housing exclusion, but it's indexed, the maximum amount is indexed based on the location of their home. And there's a really extensive list of maximums based on each country and then breaking it down to, to cities within each country that tells you the maximum amount. So,
1: And I think Melbourne, Perth, or Sydney, I think they qualify as high-cost locality. Yeah,
0: I, I think I think you're right. So once you, you get over the the housing amount, which is about 15 per, or 16% of the exclusion, then you take a look at your housing cost.
1: Of the foreign earned income exclusion.
0: That's correct, yeah. So say roughly... $16,000 you ever take a little so if you're if your rent and other qualifying expenses are $40,000 you can take 40,000 minus 16 will be added to your foreign earned income exclusion up to the cap um, based on your location
1: yeah and it's only rent isn't it it's-
0: yes I did want to make yes absolutely right it's so it's It's basically rent and things like utilities. But if you own a home, then and you pay it, have a mortgage, and you have mortgage interest, that would need to be claimed on a different schedule. You could still claim it in the US, but not as part of a housing exclusion. And before I start on the foreign tax credit, I did want to mention that when you take the foreign exclusion, you get bumped up into a higher. Tax bracket than your actual taxable income might suggest. So let's say that you take the foreign exclusion and you end up with $30,000 of taxable income. You might think that you would go to the tax charts that tell you how much tax is owed on $30,000, but in fact, you have to go to the tax charts that include that foreign income that was excluded. So this is a relatively recent development in the last several years that, well, it's probably more than several, it's probably at least five years, that they didn't allow you to use the tax rate of the actual taxable income, but they bumped the tax rate up to include the, the, the otherwise excluded income. So the argument was that it, it wasn't fair that not only did you get the exclusion, but that the additional income was taxed at this really low rate. So this $30,000 will be taxed at a much higher rate. And I, I just saw this with a client who got a, and actually was an Australian, who figured his taxes using the lower rate of, I think he had $20,000 of income, And he got a bill from the IRS saying, you know, you actually owe double the tax that you calculated because it was taxed at this higher rate, including the foreign, otherwise excluded income. So that is something that is normally automatically calculated when, when you run these tax returns through a tax program. But if somebody's doing it themselves, they might not realize that they need to do it that way, that they need to include this income. So another little wrinkle. So the foreign tax credit is as an alternative way, and I unless it's clear that all of your income is excluded in the foreign earned income exclusion, and you qualify to take it, I will often run the tax calculations with the foreign tax credit alone, particularly since Australia is a fairly high-tax country, and then run it taking the foreign exclusion and the foreign tax credit on the amount that isn't excluded. And sometimes you get a better result just taking the foreign tax credit. The foreign tax credit, first of all, there are categories of foreign tax credit. There is one category of passive income. So if you're Client has dividends and interest and paid foreign tax. You fill out one form to claim that credit. And then, suppose they had a job that, and then obviously paid Australian tax, then there's this that would fall in the category of the general category of income. And they would have to fill out a separate form for that. So you don't combine, just take all the income and all the tax and throw it in the same hopper. You have to separate out by categories of income. So that makes the foreign tax credit a little more complicated. But if the income exceeds the foreign earned income exclusion, let's say they made $165,000, they can maybe able to exclude the first 102, but now the, the balance that has to is will either be taxed at US tax rates or if, they're, if they've paid Australian tax, they can take a foreign tax credit on that excess. So if
1: income is excluded under the foreign earned income exclusion, then no foreign tax credit is given for that income.
0: That is correct. Yes, if it's entirely excluded as a foreign earned income, then the foreign tax credit is not available in any way, shape or form. Form 1116, which is the form used to calculate the foreign tax credit, has a special place where you will need to calculate out the amount of foreign tax that is allocated, if you will, to the excluded income. And you will get to take a credit only on the the remaining balance of foreign tax. So, however, if you end up Having unused foreign tax credit, you can carry it forward to future years and you may be able to apply it down the road to, to foreign income. So is it is it
1: a fair comment to say that because Australia is a high tax country, our top marginal rate is, signif- is higher than the U.S.? You know, our top marginal rate is 45 percent, whereas in the U.S. it's 39.6 percent. So given that for higher income earners, it probably is always better to go for the foreign tax credit than to go for the um, foreign earned income exclusion?
0: Well, I think that, yeah, I would have to say that that is probably a good rule of thumb, especially since the foreign earned income exclusion is dependent on these residency tests, you know, so it can limit people's ability to come and go if they feel constrained by the 35-day rule for the physical presence test and so forth. And so, yes, you you have, in a way, more flexibility with the foreign tax credit. And I like I said, I, I always run it both ways. And depending, this is the interesting thing, though, is depending on the whole tax picture, you can get different outcomes. So, you know, it depends on if there's, Lots of investment income. There's just so many other pieces that can go into the puzzle that you I, I would I think that's a good rule of thumb, but I would still prefer to verify that in that particular case, that's the best way to go. because I've seen it. Yes, I've, yes.
1: the devil is in the the devil is in the detail. Exactly. yes. And you touched on something that I thought was, was very important. Any foreign tax credit that is not used up is actually carried forward. That's, I think that's very interesting.
0: Yes, and I it's, honestly have not seen it play out to anyone's advantage that often just because if you're already paying a high rate of tax and can't use all the credit, that's probably going to be the case the next year and the next year and the next year, you know. So so you're getting as much benefit from the the foreign tax credit as you can, and then you have some left over, and then the next year you have even more left over, and, you know, and then it just sort of builds on itself.
1: If a U.S. citizen or resident alien ever returned back to the United States to work in the United States, then they would have a nice stack of foreign tax credits waiting for them there, and they probably wouldn't pay tax for, you know, for a couple of years, depending on how big this little pile of foreign tax credits is.
0: Well, the the credit has to be applied against foreign income, though. Oh, really? So you can't
1: use it against U.S. U.S. income? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. In that case, I completely agree with you then. Yeah, in that case, it's very unlikely that Somebody would ever actually use it, yeah,
0: and I mean i I suppose in a situation where they moved to a country where they had lower a lower tax rate, it might you know it might be to their advantage say they move like for Singapore I think has quite a low tax rate,
1: as you can hear, I got this completely wrong. I thought the foreign tax credits carried forward could be used against U.S.-sourced income for U.S. tax purposes, which, of course, thinking about it, wouldn't make any sense at all. But I think it is a common misconception. When I spoke to a couple of U.S. citizens living in Sydney in preparation for this interview, they all thought that thanks to this carry-forward, they had foreign tax credits waiting for them if they ever decided to work in the States again. So to just make it even clearer for the ones like me, I asked Jane to cover the foreign tax credits one more time, which she kindly did. So here's Jane.
0: So the idea is that the the credit is to take away any tax burden of having to pay twice on to two different countries on the same income. So it's very specific, the credit, to the foreign income and does not carry over to be applied against U.S. source income. That would essentially give a windfall to the taxpayer. And as you pointed out, just because uh, someone paid a high rate of tax in Australia under a system where the unused credit could be applied against U.S. tax liability, that high rate of tax in Australia would then essentially create a windfall to the American moving back to the States, who now says, oh, I can take all this credit against my U.S. tax liability. So the credit is only available to be applied against foreign source income. It doesn't matter what country that is the generator of that tax credit. Uh, Once once the credit is on the books, it can be applied to any foreign source income down the road in later years. So they don't separate out that only there's a special Australian tax credit that is applied against Australian source income and you know, a special Filipino tax credit against Filipino income or something like that. It's just in a general basket of, of tax credit. Now, having said that, as I explained earlier, there are categories of foreign income that are the US, that the IRS breaks down uh, foreign income into certain categories. So, in the general category, which is sort of the catch all, is included things like your salary or if you had self employment income, that sort of thing. This is general. Work-related revenue. If you have investment income, there's a category for passive in, of a passive category. So, the in the preparation of a tax return, one would separate out the general category income, apply the, the credit that's appropriate for that category of income on a, one form, and then there'd be, if there was investment income, a second form that would have all the money that went in the passive category, and then the uh, tax that's allocated to that. Because quite often, um, at least in, in our system, the tax rates applied to investment income are different than the tax rates applied
1: to earned income, such as salary or self-employment income. So, foreign income tax credits can only be offset against foreign income for US tax purposes. I got that now. But even with this limitation, which, as you know, we also have in Australia, in which most tax jurisdictions probably have, even with this limitation, the US tax system is still very generous in allowing a carryback and carry forward of excess tax credits at all. A carryback of one year. And a carry-forward of up to 10 years. In Australia, as you know, if we can't use foreign tax credits in the relevant year, being the year the income is included in accessible income, they are lost forever. There's no carry-forward and certainly no carry-back. But mind you, as Jane pointed out, the carry-forward for US tax purposes only kicks in if and when our US clients move from a high tax country like Australia to a low tax country like Singapore. So, this is all for now about foreign tax credits in the US. I promise you I won't mention them again in this episode. Back to Jane. I wanted
0: to touch briefly on the Affordable Care Act, which is our highly contentious effort to get health care in this country and um, so is, is, is that is that the so-called Obama act uh, well it's the, yeah it's the Affordable Care Act is also known as Obamacare and the the there was a lot of discussion when it was being proposed because the American citizens abroad and other groups that represent interests of Americans abroad were very concerned that the their, their people that live overseas would be penalized by not having a properly approved American health care. So they did create a special exemption. So you Americans living abroad, you know, can, can claim that exemption. On my tax program, I I simply put that I, I take an exception for Americans living overseas, and that's the end of it. They're not really required to provide proof that they have alternative health care. I've never had a client that was asked to do that. Now, you know, if you have an American in Australia who works for a U.S. company, they probably being provided health care by the company and will get a form that, you know, specifies that, that they're covered for the full year or the partial year. This whole area is so up in the air right now. A client brought me... A form, or actually, it was an article saying that right now, under the Trump administration, they're not even really checking to see if you have healthcare coverage as part of your tax filing requirement. So it's a very unsettled area, is, is about the best I can say. But as far as I know, Americans abroad can simply state that they claim the exemption by virtue of living abroad. So the foreign bank accounting reporting. So what we've covered up to now is pretty much the filing requirements and a broad outline of you know things to take advantage of as an American overseas in terms of the foreign earned income exclusion or the foreign tax credit. They're, is other, other reporting requirements related to foreign account ownership. And the FBAR is probably the best known, or the foreign bank account reporting. This is administered by the Treasury Department, and these forms are submitted now electronically only through a particular website that's overseen by the Treasury Department. You cannot file these as paper documents. And they basically are required, you're required to file this form if you have over ten, uh, an aggregate of more than $10,000 in foreign bank accounts. And that can be anything from cash to stocks and bonds to pension accounts, life insurance. There's been a lot of articles written in a lot of discussion about what is included in this. I always encourage clients to be as thorough as possible in coming forth with whatever they might have in terms of foreign accounts. It does not include real estate or rental properties or tangible items, you know, of that nature, but they're really just looking at foreign accounts that May or may not generate income. There is not. It doesn't. If you file an F bar, you may not report any any uh, earnings on on any of these accounts, and it's not required that you do, of course, unless, of course, you you did have earnings.
1: You mentioned pension accounts, so the Australian superannuation account would probably fall under under this and would need to be listed on on an F bar
0: report. I take the position that they do now. I I do not file. And report for my clients what I consider to be the equivalent of Social Security accounts. You know, those, like if you give money to the government that is going to be somehow returned to you when you get older, I do not include those. But any account that where there's an employer, contribution or an employee contribution sometimes they both contribute sometimes it's just the employer some you know there's so many different kinds of of accounts out there that are going to come Mm -hmm. yeah i mean the the mind-boggling numbers of accounts but you know those are basically foreign accounts that you may or may not have any control over how the money is invested and so forth. So my philosophy has pretty much been just be more inclusive than less inclusive. And if there's a question, you just report it. I think, like I said, you know, there there may be other people out there who have very different views on that. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. I just think there's been so much confusion about, what needs to be included in the F bar? That I've taken the position that I include everything that reasonably could be included. Yes. So the F bar
1: is is a completely different jurisdiction, as such.
0: That's right? right. Does the
1: IIS actually check whether a taxpayer has lodged their F bar?
0: Well, that's a good question F-bar. because I don't know if they check. I I know that there are. There's crossovers if we get into the question of people that haven't filed for a very long time, and I don't know if you're familiar with the voluntary compliance programs that are out there for Americans that haven't filed tax returns or F bars. Yeah, we have those in Australia as well. Okay. Well the the IRS set up a program that requires Three years of tax returns and six F bars. So they're certainly acknowledging the F bars, and I'm sure there's some crossover checking, but the F bars are sent to Treasury and the tax returns go to the IRS. Now the IRS is part of the Treasury Department for sure. So to what extent they cross-reference each other, I don't know. I've never I've never had the IRS come back and say, you know, we see that you reported yeah, we, we reported this foreign interest, but we don't see an F bar. I've never seen that happen. Yeah. So I don't know how much of that occurs. It's not to say that it, it didn't happen, it's just never happened with me. And, and the other thing to understand about the F bar is you would need to file for joint accounts. So if the American and the Australian, you know, the American files the return, Australian spouse does not file. But they have a joint bank account, then that amount with the full value is supposed to be reported on the F bar in a special category. You know, indicating that there is another owner. And the third category is accounts over which the taxpayer has signatory authority. And I've seen this with, for example, an example I had an American client whose mother was Canadian. And he had signatory authority over some of her accounts. And we reported those every year that he, you know, he had authority over those accounts, even though they weren't per se his accounts. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, those those are the categories of accounts, if you, uh, you know, that, that need to be considered.
1: And then the FATCA?
0: Well, now, so, so FATCA as I understand it, is the the legislation that was um, actually passed during the Obama administration to require this reporting of that the foreign banks had to report on American accounts to the Treasury Department, and then the taxpayers supposed to report to the Treasury Department, and I guess the idea is that they check and see if they both reported the same thing. I don't know how that works in practice, but they came up with another form, the 8938, which is part of the U.S. tax return. And so it's, it's basically the same information as the F bar, but it's attached to the tax return. The good thing is that if you've got it together for the F bar, then it's easy enough to fill out the 8938 because you already have all your information right in front of you. But the eighty-nine thirty-eight is only required if the value of those foreign accounts exceeds certain limits. And for a single taxpayer, it's roughly two hundred thousand. If they have over two hundred thousand, you should start looking at whether that form needs to be filed. If the couple, if it's a couple filing married joint, then the reporting threshold is four hundred thousand. So there's. Uh, even that gets complicated, but my that when I hear 400,000, it, it sets off that alarm bell in my head that they might need to fill out this form if they're married filing joint. If it's 200, then for a single person, you know, the alarm bell goes off. So it's just something to keep in mind. If they have quite a lot of, of foreign investment or you know pension accounts, life insurance, it's pretty easy with life insurance to get up into these high figures fairly quickly, then this 8938 needs to be completed and attached to the tax return.
1: So it might be a fair comment to say that the FBAR and the FATCA probably cover the same with a few you know, right gap right. but they probably cover the same it's just that the f bar is lodged with the uh, treasury whereas the fat care is part of the tax return and also the f bar kicks in at $10,000 whereas the fat care kicks exactly. in at
0: 400000 dollars yes. that's that's a good way of putting it
1: superannuation contributions in Australia employers make a contribution of 9.5% of salary and wages to a, to a fund and that's not treated as accessible income in Australia and I think there is a chance that this is treated as accessible income in the States.
0: Yes, the, the contribution that the employer makes on behalf of the employee would be considered part of their wages.
1: Welcome back. So that was our very first U.S. update from October 2017, a long time ago, before COVID, before the Ukraine, before the bushfires and the floods, a very different time back then. In the next update, number two, let's talk about non-resident alien spouses. So spouses of U.S. citizens who are not U.S. citizens, hence they are aliens, and who are not residents of the United States. Can these non-resident alien spouses get dragged into the U.S. tax system? And if yes, when and how? That is the question for U.S. update number two. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next update.